Welcome to the Jackie Always Unplugged podcast, where we're having off-the-record conversations. I'm Reverend Dr. Jackie Reese, founder and president of the Marcella Project. As a pastor, preacher, and thought leader, I've walked with women of faith for decades and had thousands of conversations about what women encounter solely because they are women. At work, family, their faith, with relationships, sex, the church, their bodies, and Jesus. On this podcast, we're going to be asking hard questions, dealing with real issues, and revisiting scripture with a new lens. These conversations are going to put words to your female experience. They're going to ennoble you as Jesus intended and encourage you to bring your full self to the table. It's here we're going to reshape our view. Welcome to today's episode. We're in our series called Lime Green, and it's here we're talking about her, the ideal biblical woman, who, as it turns out, isn't all that biblical. And today's episode, you've got talent, which takes me to the story. We're in it. It's found in Matthew 25. In this story, there's a master. That would be Jesus. And there are three servants that work for him. That would be us. The master's really wealthy. He owns a lot of stuff. And he's about to go on a trip, so he calls his three servants in, and he proceeds to tell them he's leaving them everything he's got. He's leaving him in charge of it all. And he gives to the first servant five talents, and to the second servant two talents, and to the third servant one talent. Now we need to pause here and ask, what on earth is a talent in Scripture? So glad you asked. In Scripture, a talent was like an expression of a sum of money valuing about 15 years of wages like you're receiving 15 years of income all at one time. So like if I had to give an example, I could say, you know, if you make $100,000 a year, the master calls you in, he hands over to you $1.5 million. That's a ton of money. But the truth is, we hear those kinds of numbers thrown around often, but not so much in Jesus's day. Back then, people worked for a daily wage. A person was considered wealthy if they could accumulate like one year's wage, let alone 15. The point I'm trying to make is that the figures that Jesus is throwing around here are staggering. These servants have been given a huge amount of wealth. Without a doubt, this is an opportunity of a lifetime for them. John Orkberg is one of my favorite preachers, and he makes three observations about this story that I find very interesting. He says, first, there are no no no-talent people in this story. This is not a story where some are gifted and some are not. And some of us, for a variety of reasons, we don't think we have any talent that's usable for God. But Scripture says not true. And in a minute, I think you're going to see that. The second observation is that the master gives the talent. Like, he decides who gets what. That's always kind of bugged me. I'd like to decide who gets what. Wouldn't you? The third observation is that there are varied amounts of talents given. Everybody isn't given the same amount. But remember, even one talent was considered a staggering amount of money. What we need to know is that Jesus' parables were basically extended metaphors. Their stories, the stories are like a window through which a larger reality is depicted. Some of the details in the parable are simply there to help the story seem more realistic. And this is true of the talent as an expression of money. The point is, the master had given his servant tons of resources to invest on his behalf. So we have to ask, 
if this is a story and we're in it, then what has God given us that he intends for us to use on his behalf? I'd like to suggest that it's your talent. But I'd like to stretch your view on what a talent looks like. Talent is anything and everything God has placed in and around us that gives us an opportunity to bring glory to his name. If you listen to episode one in this series, we talked about this idea, the fact that scripture says that our purpose is to glorify God, to show him off, basically. And we do that in a gazillion different ways, and we must because God is enormous. If he were color, he'd be every color there is and every shade of those colors and colors we haven't even seen yet. And we need all of those colors in order to see the fullness of who God is. So back to the talent. Talent today is anything and everything that God has placed in and around us that gives us an opportunity to bring glory to his name. So what are your talents? When you hear me ask that, you might start to think in your mind, well, it's, it's what I do well at work. Or you might say, well, it's my title. I possess this title or that title. Maybe you're really good at, at a particular game, a particular sport. I might list my emotional IQ. And yes, it's all of those things that we normally think about when we hear the word talent. But I want to stretch our thinking just a bit more, a little beyond that. I want us to also consider talents that make us uniquely who we are like the specific family you grew up in, good, bad, and ugly. Your family shaped and molded who you are. I want you to think about where you've lived, different locations, different states, maybe different countries. How did that shape who you are? What about your heritage? What's been passed down? Your race, your nationality, your gender? We don't always think about them in this way, but they are God's investment in us. They have helped shape and mold us into the one-of-a-kind, never-to-be-seen-again-in-history person that we are. What about our struggles, trials? Yours are different than mine. And they allow us to show God off in ways perhaps others can't. Now, what do I mean by that? Well, let me share a story. I had a friend who called, and she told me she found a lump on her breast. I've never had breast cancer. So my ability to walk with my friend through this time was, was limited. I mean, there were just things I didn't know, ways I couldn't help her. But a woman in Oklahoma, a friend of a friend, she did have breast cancer. And they talked throughout this whole process. And that woman in Oklahoma, she helped my friend figure out the best place to buy scarves for when her hair fell off. She told her how to apply makeup when her face became that ashy look that you get from chemo. And when my friend discovered clumps of hair in her pillow, she said, well, it's time to have a head shaving party. And we did. I watched that woman in Oklahoma walk alongside my friend like Jesus. And I wanted to be that for her, but I couldn't. I was limited. And that's what I mean by we have struggles that allow us to be like Jesus in ways that others can't. So what about it? What suffering, what trial shaped you? That's your talent. It may not be the talent we want, but it is a talent nonetheless. 
We have different personalities. Speaking as a menopausal woman, I can attest that some of us have more than one. Oh, my husband doesn't find that as funny as me. (laughs) We've been given different financial resources. I'll, I'll never forget when my friend Nancy, who's about 15 years my junior, came home from college, and we were having coffee, and it was her. she was finishing up her senior year of college. She was telling me she was trying to decide what she was going to do over the summer, and she thought maybe she'd go to Paris, France to learn how to cook. And I thought, oh, yeah, that's exactly what I thought when I was going to learn how to cook. I'll just go to Paris, France. Some of you have been given tremendous financial resources that open doors for you that, well, quite frankly, aren't open for me. When we're physically born, God gives us certain talents, these natural abilities, things we love to do, and we're good at them. For some, it could be writing poetry or cooking or presenting an excellent legal defense. That's talent. And as Christians, we have at least one spiritual gift. could be leadership, service, encouragement, you know, the supernatural ability that Jesus gives us so that we can bring forth God's kingdom on earth as it already is in heaven. These are just some of the things. I'm trying to stretch our thinking. Let me just say, you've got talent. And your talent doesn't look like mine. And mine doesn't look like yours. God has been investing in each of us as a -a one-of-a-kind, never-to-be-seen-again-in-history person. But here's where I want to stop the story. There's so much more I want to say about it like how the third guy is called lazy and wicked because he didn't invest in his talent because he buried it. And oh, how I could talk about how we women bury our talent. We do it because we compare ourselves with other women. We don't measure up, so we hold back. We do it because we're afraid. We're afraid of failure. We're afraid that Jesus will rock the boat, you know, our status quo if we say yes to something. We're afraid we'll look stupid. And we even forget, you know, that the master's coming back? Erwin McManus sums up this passage, and I find it a challenge to resist trying to be like her, that ideal biblical woman. He says this, God created us with the image of God within us. He created us with the divine capacity and potential. He created us in such a way that we could fulfill his dreams for humanity. And when we don't take that stewardship seriously, When we don't use the talent within us, God considers that not only lazy, but wicked. Noodle on that for a bit. By the way, if you want more resources on how to discover your talents, you can go over to our website, themarcellaproject.com. We have our book there, Lime Green. We also have this mini course called Embracing Your Uniqueness that will help you kind of dig into these things deeper. There's other stuff too. But let me get back to our talent. God's investment in us that shapes and makes us into this one-of-a-kind, never-to-be-seen-again-in-history person. And that one-of-a-kind woman is the woman that Jesus is inviting. Not some ideal, not some perfect version of that woman. The one-of-a-kind woman that he's created you to be. That's who he's inviting to the table. And I know what happens when I say that. Because I've sat across the table with many of you sharing these kinds of insights. You stare at me. You even nod in agreement, but you're not buying it. I've seen it often. Instead of seeing talent, you see not enough. You see quirks, character flaws, imperfections, even darkness within. 
So you hold back from bringing your full self to the table. But what if? What if Jesus isn't as fixated or worried about our flaws and quirks and imperfections, or dare I even say it, the darkness within? What if he intends to use those parts of us right alongside the wonderful parts in order to bring him glory? I know. Sounds a little bit like anathema, right? Or some kind of pie-in-the-sky idea. But it's not. It's in Scripture. Just look at who Jesus chose to carry forth his work when he departed. I want you to think about that. If you were going to task a bunch of people with bringing forth God's kingdom on earth as it already is in heaven, who would you choose? Right? And when you think about this idea of God's kingdom on earth as it already is in heaven, you can just look back to Genesis 1 and 2, where God gave woman and man the cultural mandate to, to go ahead and take all of his raw materials that he provided and create civilizations where all of creation flourishes. That's basically the mandate he gave to human beings. Have at it. Create civilizations in my likeness where all of creation flourishes. And then things stopped flourishing, didn't they? But when Jesus got up, sent his spirit, what he was doing was he's restoring God's original vision, that Genesis vision that he had for us. And then Jesus leaves and he says to his followers, now go, do that, be like me. Be about creating societies where all of creation flourishes. That's the task he gave the disciples back then and today. If you had to choose someone for that task, who would you choose? If I had to put together the leadership team, like I'd choose Einstein because, well, he's brilliant. It's going to take a lot of really good thinking. And then we need excellent leadership. So Ellen Johnson Sirleaf is my choice There's going to be a lot of details to be administered, and and I'm going to choose my admin, Amanda Ware, because she's phenomenal. It's going to take a lot of money to get it done. We're going to have to add the wealth and fame of the Gates. You get my point, right? I'd choose the best of the best, but Jesus didn't. He doesn't. He chose nobodies in his society. He chose imperfect, quirky people with character flaws, like Peter, a fisherman who, yeah, I'll give him credit. He was a visionary leader, but he had a temper. Like he, he impulsively cut a guy's ear off. And then there's Philip who seemed really slow to catch on. And Nathaniel who was judgmental and Thomas who doubted. And then there's me. I speak and write on behalf of Jesus. And you know what? I can't speak or write. I misspell. I mispronounce words all the time. My friends, they have a running, a running list of malapropisms on the inside of one of my kitchen cupboards. It's a list of all the things that I say wrong. Like when I was talking to my son Hunter, we've got to go to Target and get a windmill. Yes, did you hear me? A windmill. And he immediately responds, because he knows me, you mean ceiling fan, Mom? And I was like, yes, yes, that's exactly what I meant. I used to think I needed to hide this flaw for fear that people would equate my inability to use words with my intelligence. Makes me think of something Brene Brown says. She says, for women... Shame is a web of unattainable expectations that say, do it all, do it perfectly, and never let them see you struggle. At first, I have to be honest, it was a little hard to put forth this flaw. But the more I started thinking about God's design, I had to become okay with it. I started to think that Perry Downs was correct. God has called us not to model perfection, but to model redemption. We are living demonstrations not of how good we are, but of how good God is. 
Often my malapropisms are on display, usually unintentionally, quite frankly. But I no longer feel the need to hide or self-deprecate because of it. I just simply accept it's part of my wiring, and I trust that somehow it shows off God too. I even hope that in some weird way, it'll give permission, embolden other women to stop feeling the need to be perfect, to stop hiding. Thomas Merton is a Catholic theologian and writer. He once said, But the man who is not afraid to admit everything that he sees to be wrong within himself and yet recognizes that he may be the object of God's love precisely because of his shortcomings can begin to be sincere. His sincerity is based on confidence, not in his own illusions of himself, but in the endless, unfailing mercy of God. Jesus chose people who were wonderfully made and deeply flawed. And they brought their flawed selves to the table and participated in bringing forth God's kingdom on earth as it already is in heaven. Jesus chose flawed people. He still does. I know, I hear you. Okay, Jackie, so maybe the flaws and the quirks, but what about the darkness that still resides in me? Surely that's reason enough to shrink back. I get it. I've thought that too. But that just leads me to another parable in Matthew. Matthew, the, the parable of the wheat and the, and the weeds. Back when I used to think more dualistically, you know, where things can either be right or wrong, good, bad, up and down. I used to think this parable was, was trying to explain why or how good and evil existed together out there somewhere in the world, right? It both existed and God said, someday I'll, I'll, I'll make it all right. But I don't think it's dualistically anymore. And now, not only do I see it talking about the fact that good and evil exists out there, but I'm coming to understand that it speaks about the good and evil that simultaneously exists within me. In Matthew 13, 30, the disciples asked Jesus, should we pull out the weeds? And Jesus replied, no, you'll uproot the weed if you do. Let them grow together until the harvest. If the parable isn't about the good and evil that's out there, but rather about the good and evil that's also, I should say, if it's about that, but also simultaneously the good and evil that lives inside of me, then what do I do with what Jesus just said there? Don't uproot the wheat. Don't. You'll uproot the wheat. Let it grow together. What do you do with that? I've never heard it preached. It doesn't sound very victorious. You know, like, it's okay that there's still sin within. Leave it there. (laughs) That won't work. Surely if you just apply these eight biblical principles, then voila, that sin will be gone. I used to think like that, but I'm older. And don't get me wrong, many of the sinful things within me have been transformed over time by the power of the Spirit. But when I look back, I'm actually kind of surprised that some of the sins I started this faith journey on, they're still with me. And I I think back to the years and the energy that I've struggled to get rid myself of them. And, and, and here's Jesus saying, don't pull the weeds. You're going to ruin the wheat. I'll take care of it when I get back. I'm wondering if Jesus is saying, stop spending so much time at that. Just bring yourself to the table and let's get at it. God doesn't seem to be so freaked out that we have darkness within us. Now, I'm not saying that God condones or sanctions evil. I'm just saying he doesn't withhold his love or even disqualify us from his good works simply because there is evil in us. I know, that statement right there can get me shot. But I'm sticking by it. 
because of who Jesus chose and continues to choose to bring forth his kingdom on earth as it already is in heaven. Think about like King David, the man after God's own heart. He murdered people. Martin Luther, the leader of the Protestant Reformation, great man of faith. He went to his grave hating Jews. Martin Luther King Jr., another great leader, right, of the civil rights movement. He he cheated on his wife. No one denies these men's contributions to God's kingdom work. But we ignore they also had darkness in them while doing so. And again, I'm not saying that we get to sin and then go, oh, well, God doesn't care about my sin, or that we can forego working on our character flaws by just saying, oh, well, it's just how God made me. But I am saying that we must live fully truthful about ourselves, and we must learn how to live unapologetically who we are controlled by the Spirit. I think Richard Rohr, he's a Catholic priest, I think he summarizes this wheat and tear best when he says this. He says, it takes a lot more patience, compassion, and forgiveness and, then, and love than aiming for some illusionary perfection that is usually blind to its own faults. Acknowledging both the wheat and weeds in us keeps us from thinking too highly of ourselves and also from dismissing ourselves as terrible. When I consider these two parables, I see a God who's not freaked out about our flaws, quirks, or even the darkness within. I see a God who considers us, all of what makes us us, as his investment in his world, his masterpiece. Remember, a masterpiece is the most outstanding piece of work of a creative artist. When you see a masterpiece like the David statue or the Mona Lisa, your mind goes to the one who carved it, the one who painted it, the one who created it. Yeah, that's why God wants us to stop trying to be like her, the ideal woman, the perfect woman, and instead to relax, lean into who he created us to be, his one-of-a-kind, never-to-be-seen-again-in-history image-bearer. You've got talent. It's time you bring it to the table. Hey, if you've enjoyed this conversation, then hop on over to themarcellaproject.com and sign up for our email or check out some of our other resources. You can also find me on the Marcella Project Facebook page or on every other platform of social media as Jackie Reese, R-O-E-S-E. Have a great day.